Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Kat Davis, one of the short filmmakers. Hello, Kat. Hello there. Your film was called Connie. Do you want to, before we go into any details, do you want to give the audience um, what, what the uh, brief synopsis as to what Connie's about? Yeah, sure. Connie is about um, a young female stand-up or an aspiring stand-up comedian who really struggles with stage fright. And every time she takes to the stage, she finds that she is completely lost for words and just can't speak. And she's addicted to self-help books. Her only friends in life are her dolls from her extensive doll collection. And she sits down to watch TV one evening and stumbles across the the Great Gabbo playing on TV. And she hits the nail on the head and goes, the way to solve my problems is maybe to get a puppet and speak through a puppet. So she buys this rather loud-mouthed, felt-mouthed, little, less-than-three-foot-tall puppet over the internet, but then the puppet arrives and it becomes very quickly clear that it's actually alive. And it was part of the Frightfest short film selections. Yeah. So was, was that your, like, full premiere for the film? Yeah, that was that was the world premiere for the film. Wow. We just got it finished in time, as in completely post-done, DCP-generated you know, delivered to the VUE. It was the first outing. And it's a great place to premiere anything because it's such a lovely, really cineliterate community at Fright Fest. And you really get a sense that people understand what it is you're trying to do. Mm. You don't have to go in there to the screening and then talk to people afterwards and have lots of caveats or be really apologetic or say, oh, I'm not sure if you understood that, or did you get this reference, or have you ever seen Child's Play? You, <laughs> you kind of, you know that everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet of Fright Fest, so it's, it's a bit of a gift to a filmmaker, really. Now, is this, how many, how many short films have you made in, 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 the, in, the, in the past, as it were? So this is my second short film made within the last sort of year period, and okay. before that... Um, I wrote a novel and all sorts of short stories, things that are on the radio, 
and prior to that used to make shorts on my undergraduate degree mm. which you know I'm quite an old girl now so it was about 13 years ago so the first shorts that I made there were not horrors but sort of comedies or offbeat comedies mm. really strange black comedies and it's just kind of evolved because I love horror and comedy so much mm. they instinctively I just seem to, that seems to be what I write so, um, but I spent the last sort of 10 years, more than 10 years now, working professionally and broadcasting, doing things like production management, line producing, event production, um, creative project management, so things like the listening project on Radio 4, I set that one up. Yeah. So I've always been there on the peripheries, be it if I'm in the creative driving seat or facilitating it, so it felt like a very natural thing. I got to a certain point where I just thought, do you know what, I can't be beating myself down all the time going, I'm not sure that's a good enough idea or I'm not sure I'm ready to share this with anyone and just leaving my ideas to fester away on my laptop or my iPad. Mm. I sort of got to a point where I really grew in confidence and just thought, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So the production end of my short films, that's been more of my creative focus for about a year, year and a half now. Now, you, you wrote and directed this, didn't you? I did. I wrote and directed and did the production design, um, so I didn't sleep a lot. Yes. Um, and some of the nuts and bolts kind of production elements, you know, booking your location, sorting your insurance, contracting your actors, dealing with agents, sifting through in terms of music licensing, can I use this clip or not? So it's very demanding, but that's something that I have been used to doing in sort of day-to-day -day production work. So that's that's something that I'm quite used to. But when you're then having to very quickly switch hats, particularly on set, mm. when you have to then think, God, I need my contract back, when you're in a creative headspace, it's very, very hard to switch hats at that point. But otherwise, it's not a problem, really. Well, let's, let's, look, at, let's look at the start of this then. So, so what, what inspired this for you? What was, you know, in, in the process of you developing ideas that are, that are growing on your laptop and iPad, what was, it that, what was it that made you go, right, this one I'm going to develop? Do you know what? I, I went on holiday to New York mm. and I had this puppet made. So the Connie puppet, which is used in the final film, I just had it made on a whim. I thought, this would be really cool, this would be cute, this would be something that I can keep at home. Mm-hmm. And she's made completely specially to order, more just for ornamental value at first. And by the time I brought her back to the UK, it's going to sound really crazy, um, I started walking around the house with the puppet. And I just thought, this is such a great puppet, I really want to do something with this. And then as sort of playing with the puppet in the house evolved, I started to use the voice of Fran, the prostitute, from mm. The Man With Two Brains. Right. It's a really great classic Steve Martin film, directed by, I think it's Carl Reiner, mm. and the, the prostitute just goes, I don't mind, oh, it's my voice, right? And so I just built the character of Connie around this really brash, New York kind of showgirl type, and so that started to become a character in its own right. I just didn't quite know what to do with it. it can, I just, can I just interrupt you there? I like the fact mm. that you say the crazy bit is you're walking around talking to the puppet when <laughs> yeah. nobody's ever answered the question, what inspired the story with I had a puppet made in New York? That's, that's already, you've already gone into new territory there. The fact you're walking around your house felt quite normal at that point. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it gets weirder. It gets weirder in the Tell life of Cat Davis. That's tame. That's pretty tame. But, um, 
So the cat, I just developed the character. I yeah. didn't quite know what I wanted to do with it, yeah. but she, I, I found when I, I, I'm quite, I've got a really filthy sense of humour anyway, mm-hmm. but I just found it was funnier when I smoke it through the puppet and I could say whatever I wanted. Mm. It was great. You could say it's like a carte blanche to do whatever you want to do. It's great. Yeah. But then I thought, you know, I can't just make a film about a puppet. There has to be the sort of polar opposite and the conflict and the character development and more of a journey. Mm. And I've been doing another MA. um, And as part of it, I chose a research topic of looking into the uncanny and the way that dolls and ventriloquist dummies are used in horror cinema as a device. Do you want to tell people what the MA is you're doing? Yeah, this is called professional media practice. Um, which encompasses, so I did feature film production at the Met Film School, Mm -hmm. journalism at Goldsmiths. Um, I'm doing some creative non-fiction at the moment as well. So it just encompasses all of the creative production elements, and you do projects and and written work or films as part of it. Sounds brilliant, by the way. It's great, it's great. It's something that I started a couple of years ago. It actually started out for different reasons. It was something that when the BBC had... A few more pennies at the time and they yeah. were sort of able to develop staff it was a case of go and do something that will help you progress in your career right. um, which is great it's a fantastic thing to be able to do mm-hmm. but um, I've already got an MA so to some people it might seem a little bit weird that I'm doing a second one um, so you know I, I like learning things I don't love reading lots of very dense academic papers but it's something interesting for me. And part of the research into the uncanny, you know, I watched lots of films that I grew up with because I had really, really liberal parents as a kid. I watched whatever I wanted. I really, really could, apart from snuff, obviously. They would absolutely draw the line on that. You couldn't really get that at your mum and pop video shop, though, I don't think. I don't know. I grew up in real. I've pretty much seen it all. You know, it's, it's pretty rough. So I grew up watching things like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Evil Dead. You know, I just loads of zombie films, every zombie film, all the Fulci films, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I'd already come across things like Child's Play, Magic, Asylum, Puppet Master, Dolls. But then as part of the research, I discovered new things. And, you know, I'd heard of Dead of Night, but I'd never actually seen it. Oh. And... It's, it's, yeah, I know, I know. I just, a a little, a little part of me salivated then. Um, And then, (laughs) and also watched Dead Silence, a couple of episodes of The Twilight Zone, which are absolutely tremendous. Even came across an episode of Angel that makes really great use of um, puppets in that. Mm. And what I noticed from this research was that there was a real gap in sort of female-centred stories or a female antagonist and protagonist. It's generally, it's generally a male puppet and a male ventriloquist. Or it, it's, it's an area that I thought could do with a bit of exploration and I just sat down and thought of all of the different kinds of strange, competitive female friendship areas that could be explored, you know, mm. sort of catty bitch fighting over blokes, um, the sense that if you have a sort of weaker character, then Connie might want to mother them and help guide them and lead them through. It's just uh, it's an extra dimension. So I sat down and, after months of this research, wrote the first draft pretty quickly, but the voices sounded quite different the way 
they turned out in the final four. I just didn't have now, get, I'm just, just, just so I've got this clear. You, so you were doing, you were doing this research into the uncanny, which led you into yeah. doing the research into the use of dolls and dummies in in film. Yes. And that helped fuel what then became the script for Connie, which is yeah. a separate entity in of itself. It's not born yes. out of the no. study of the uncanny. No, no, Good. it became a separate project. Brilliant, brilliant! What uh, an amazing way to uh, to link your your academic with your with your creative work. That's. Uh, I thought I kind of need to, otherwise I think I would go nuts. <laughs> I need to feel like if I'm reading something or watching something from an academic perspective, yeah. I need to then go and do something with it. Otherwise, it would just become one of those useless, millions and millions of useless pub trivia facts that I have in the back of my head, mm. um, which makes me a good quiz team member. But, you know, it's, it can sometimes sound like Rain Man when I talk to people. There's just too much going on. Now, your, your, your central char- character who, who has the doll is, a, is, is the wannabe stand-up comic. Yes. Which is something you've done yourself, isn't it? You've done. I did, yeah. I did it for about two or three years. And a sort of mixed experience, really. I found that, you know, I made really dark jokes and I think that sometimes audiences find it hard to take dark jokes from a woman, or they did then, mm. um, which was a challenge at the time. I think things have evolved quite a bit since then. Mm. Also, back then, there was a case of you don't want more than one female act on the bill, which is absolutely bonkers because there are that many female comedians out there. I haven't met that many that all do the same material or have the same shtick. Mm. You know, but that there was a lot of that back then. I think it's improved since then, but I mean, it's had to. Um, but yeah, I did it for about three years, and then I sort of I did a bit of a, a turn on it and went, well, you know what? I want to do some cabaret, so I went and did. Um, I went and emceed cabaret nights, and I was a fire eater and a burlesque act. So I travelled around doing that really at the same mm. time as writing a book and making radio dramas. So I was quite busy there. But when, when you were doing your, your comedy, do, were, you, were you seeing characters like the one you've written into Connie then? Or is it, in fact, is the one, is this something you recognised in yourself when you, before you were able to get up there and do the dark jokes? Is this, is this part of most comics' routine, this terrifying, light, dazzled by lights, everybody hates me, I shouldn't do this, but I'm compelled to... I find, yeah, I find a lot of stand-ups, some of my best friends, some of my closest friends in the world are stand-ups, and they have tremendous ups and downs, and there are a lot of stand-ups that have depression, and oddly, you know, if you really think about it, it's often a, a sad, nervous, or depressed person getting up on stage who's trying to make a room full of people laugh, who mm. would probably in a decent enough mood to begin with. So it's a really strange psychological balance for a stand-up when you get up on in, get up on a stage. Mm. But for me, I think I used to get horrible stage fright from going up and doing stand-up way more so. I, I find that more naked and exposing than going up and sitting there in my pants on a stage with fire tassels. Do you know what I mean? It's, right. it's, it makes you feel way more naked because... I can't, I can't claim to know what you mean. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's true. I, I just felt... 
it, it was absolutely terrifying. So my way through it was to have, th you know, two, three drinks to get on stage just yeah. to calm the nerves, just absolutely terrifying. Mm. And I guess there is part of me that's written into Dolly because, you know, if I'd been smart enough to figure out back then, wow, I could get this really great puppet, wouldn't that really help me? God, I'd have done it. I'd have done it in a heartbeat, even if she was possessed by, the, by a spirit entity of a, a, you know, serial killer New Yorker. You know, I really would. It's what's, what's, there's a real inter interesting coincidence here. Is I interviewed um, one of the short filmmakers who was on the, the Frackfest programme, a guy called Sam Ashurst. Yeah, I know Sam. <laughs> but, but uh, well, he, you, you'll know then that he also comes from a stand-up background as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so the question I asked him, which I, I'll, I'll ask you now, is sort of how, how, how do you think writing for stand-up has helped influence or, or, or inform your, your writing for drama and sort of linear narrative stuff? Ooh, it's an interesting one. I think I know how to craft a joke now. So it doesn't matter if I'm writing a joke into a piece of long-form fiction yeah. or if I'm writing it in a script. And I recognise where comedy comes from, you know, juxtapositions, mishaps, slapstick. I feel it's helped in some ways in terms of writing the jokey elements. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know, it's a hard one. It depends on the kind of stand-up you were. If you were a one-liner if, if one merchant, then it, that's a great direct transition because sitcoms particularly are completely reliant on, you know, a number of jokes a page. You yeah, know, yeah, a really yeah, high yeah. hit rate. So that's perfect. And I know a lot of stand-ups that will do things like writing things for Mop the Week or, you know, the caption stuff for Have I Got News For You. Yeah. That's, that's perfect. That's an, a very natural transition. But if you're an observational story kind of comic, then I think it's a bit more difficult because you have to edit more on a script. You don't... Well, it depends on who your filmmaker is, really. I don't think you have the luxury of telling a story in the same way in dialogue. Okay, It's just you. a completely different form. So I think it just depends on the kind of stand-up that you did. Sure. I mean, one of the parallels that Sam drew, and just see what you think of this as a, as a theory, um, was, was um, with comedy, obviously, part of getting the laugh is the misdirection that gets you to the point where you surprise people with the reveal. Yeah. And equally, what he said was, and I never thought of it this way before, and I, I, it kind of makes sense. If you're writing horror... You've got the same, almost like the same principle you're trying to establish is that look over here, watch this, be interested in this, and then I'm going to mm. bring this round, I suppose, yeah. on the blind side. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a great parallel with the sleight of hand magic. Mm. You know, it's all of that same sort of smoke and mirrors and theatre of how can I seed it, how can I foreshadow it enough so that at the end of the film or the end of the joke you don't feel cheated and mm. you buy it, basically but how do I not give too much away that you see it coming a mile away? And I'm terrible for that because I've done so much script editing. Mm. Every time I watch anything, anything at all, I can pretty much see what's coming. But most people can't, but because I'm constantly looking for the story mechanics of things, of, ah, there it is, I've seen the foreshadowing, there we go, I know what's coming next. The only thing that I can't is with The Walking Dead. That's the only thing that I can't ever guess what's happening because anyone can die in that at any moment. <laughs> any moment, you can be smashed around the head with Lucille, so, you know, you never really know. 
I like that. that there's, that there's one thing that can surprise you. Everything else you can kind of pick, mentally pick the bones out of it, and then there's the one program that it befuddles your 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 abilities to deconstruct drama. Yeah. I think I think um, it's a it's it's a really difficult one because I can sit at home with my partner and I can say, "Oh God, he did it," or "It's that person," or "I know what's coming now," and he just sits there and goes, "No, don't," and then I blurt it out, and he's just like, "You've ruined this for me. You've ruined it." Flips the table. No, he doesn't really. <laughs> you need you need, you need a post-it pad just to write things down, and then fold them up and go, "There you go." So I said uh, I had this one called at minute seven. <laughs> exactly. It's 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 a bit of a shame, but at the same time, it doesn't make me appreciate the film or the story any less. Yeah, really yeah, yeah. Because I, I can still absolutely love a film, even if I can see the markers in the road. Mm. It doesn't stop me loving the film, but it's a weird... It's almost like an inner monologue that I can have when I'm watching a film. I'm not just completely absorbed. Mm. I'm constantly questioning the direction that it's going and the character motivations, but I think... It's just because I've worn that hat for so long. Yeah, I've, it's given me a sort of really weird brain damage. I think. Now, now, as short films go, the the, the, the you, you and Sam may well have had a stand-up background, but your short films are kind of polar opposites in many sense. In in a, in one big sense, should I say? Not many senses. In one big sense, his is two minutes, mm. and yours is twenty. Mm, yeah. So, this is a great two minutes as well. It's no, great. no, no, and it's 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 not to compare. It's not to compare mm. and contrast. It's it's just the fact that showing as what to show for the audience benefit really that you know that's a, that's that gives you a big spectrum in terms of what you can do with short film and and certainly with 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 yours you've 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 very much got a mini sort of beginning, middle, and end. There's no whereas I think it's safe to say, and that's something discussed with Sam, is that his is you know his is set up and payoff. Mm, and, yeah, and it yeah. ends. Whereas, whereas you've got many setup and payoffs going on, like a mm. normal feature presentation would do. But obviously, its its runtime is shorter. Yeah. So, so in that sense, then what what when you when you, you know, let me get, let me retrace the story again. So you you get a doll made, you bring the doll back, you start mm-hmm. playing with the doll. That makes you think, here's some. Oh, <laughs> I've given it a funny voice. Yeah. Then you go, hold on a minute, I can use research into the uncanny to sort of explore this. Mm-hmm. So when when you've got when this information is all bubbling around your head, and you start to write this down into what is that twenty minute story? Yes. What's what's your process there in terms of um, and let's let because obviously you, you you clearly are a busy person um, doing all kinds of other things. But let's let's think about it in in an ideal world for yes. a, for a writing habit. What's yes. what's your kind of you know are you up with the larks? Are you kind of Dragging yourself out of bed, you're burning the midnight oil. Are you outlining it? Are you index carding it? What you know? What's your approach to develop that twenty pages or so? Do you know what I find? It's different with every project that I do, okay. but in essence, I find that it starts with a character focus. I tend to start with who the people are first, okay, um, and then very quickly, usually, I get a title in mind. And sometimes the title helps me stay on course and helps influence ideas. There's one that um, I came up with, and it, it was the title first, and it's probably something I'm going to do over the next six, six or eight months. Okay. It, the title came first, and from that, 
it was almost like a gift. I'm not saying I wake up and I get yesterday playing in my head and everything I write is yesterday because believe me, it's not. I can write <laughs> some awful crap that, that I have to sit and edit and edit. But I tend to find that if I write something poorly or that I hate, it's something I've written very organically. It can just stray off course way too much. So in terms of a... They, they can evolve slightly differently... Um, but I tend to use a lot of post-it notes. Okay. So brainstorming, but lots of coloured post-it notes. I'll make lots of notes in notepads. I do lots of spider diagrams. I think with Connie, I did sort of three or four pages of spider diagrams. And one of them, you know, the centre bubble was female relationships. Okay. You know, what are all of the weird little <coughs> elements to female friendships? And, you know, one little branch you have coming up is the catty bitchy side mm. and then you've got the competitive side because uh, women I find women are really competitive in terms of blokes careers everything I'm mm. a bit of a, a bloke in that respect I kind of I'm not wired in the same way but a lot a lot are mm. so it's all of and then you've got the mother element and if you've got someone with a 20 year age difference and the kind of the carer so lots of different female relationships and mm. all of the little intricacies of, well, what would happen if a bloke was brought into this scenario? Would the puppet then attack the woman? Or would she try and take over the woman? What, how would that work? Mm. And another page was lots of elements and the sorts of codes of conventions from the du dummy and doll films. So what are the, the recognisable elements? And there's often a puppet bites the hand... And then there's a bite mark there. Or there's the doll that's walking around that's, that's very voodoo-focused, like Chucky, which I think is probably more of a parallel for Connie. Mm -hmm. um, and the incantation element and the supernatural element. But then you've got things like dolls where it's people shrunk to be dolls. So it's just exploring all of those things and then picking the bits that I thought would fit and work together. Right, okay. And my final sheet being, who are my characters and how should they contrast each other? So if you've got Connie, who's, though she's a puppet, she used to be a person. Who was she as a person? So she's very loud. She's very brash. She just happens to be American. She's not brash because she's American, yeah, which yeah. I think a lot of writers do. I just think it's kind of part of it. She's just, mm. she's just American. Um, she could easily have been from Essex, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but she's very experienced, she's very, um, she's bisexual, she's very fruity, um, she's very domineering and demanding, she's very much in the driving seat. And because she's the older figure, if you like, she knows so much more. Mm. So in contrast to that, what do you do to create conflict and make for an interesting arc? You just juxtapose that with the introvert, the shy person, but she needs something to help her be brash and bold and achieve a dream. She needs something to help her. You know, she's younger, she's prettier, she's in need of someone to lead her like a mother figure. So you put those together and you have a story. And then my biggest question then was, you know, does someone live? Without giving it away, does someone okay. live, does someone die? But I think when you go into seeing these kinds of films, you know it's not going to end well. No, no, no. So it then becomes a guessing game of um, how does it go from two characters who... I mean, I, I think of Connie as, a at first, a really sweet, if slightly filthy, um, 
tender love story between two women who basically need each other. It's just tragic because you know it's going to go wrong. So then you have to kind of work out from there in terms of process. Mm. What are those incidents that make it go wrong? And that is a bloke becomes involved and you help the other person to start achieving things, but then you're not necessarily comfortable with it. And mm. then comes the downfall because those two people then cannot coexist there has to be that breaking point. So it's more than about working out the breaking points. Um, and in this film, there's a faux documentary that we did with um, Kim Newman. And that just seemed like the pivotal moment, really. So that's kind of where that came from. That was, I mean, that, that was a real curveball in terms of the in terms of the film because it felt it felt like it sort of went very meta. I mean, obviously, mm. it, it, it was it was obviously well within the action of the film. Yeah. It, it, it didn't take us out of it, but it was it was a bit like um, it's you. I don't know if you saw Found Footage three D, but you had, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you had Scott Weinberg obviously playing himself as a film mm. journalist. Yeah. doing a set report in a found footage movie. Oh, that's a great film. That's a great film. And so, <laughs> it was indeed. But suddenly you've got Kim Newman, a talking head, <laughs> as, 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 as much as, mm. any, you know, that's how most people would see him. Obviously, he's mm. a, a great writer with books books coming out of the wazoo, I think, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but obviously he's, he's a man who's not talking heads, and it's usually about things that are on the fringes, and obviously talking about horror films is, is meat and two vegetables, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, um, I- I, I, it is supposed to be the meta element of it, and I think I just wanted to do something a bit... Sounds really cliche. I wanted to do something a bit clever. And I thought, do you know what? A faux documentary with someone who really knows what they're talking about, reflecting. Because, I mean, that was shot as, you know, it was a specially shot interview that he did for us. And yeah. I just interviewed him and asked him all sorts of questions about dummy and doll movies. So that's not scripted then? This is you no, picking no. on his expertise? Yeah, yeah, it's just oh, so it's very meta then, it's very yeah, meta. Yeah, very meta, yeah. Oh, I'm, it's very li- impressed. I'm very impressed now, I thought. Yeah, it's, it, it was something that I thought when, uh, when we told him about it, we'd be like, oh, it'd be 15 minutes. But Kim says so much great stuff, and yeah. I'm actually, we're going to cut together something for the website. Yeah. Uh, a sort of extended cut. Because he's so knowledgeable. I mean, he is. You know, he's a I was god. Going to say about anything, basically. I was going to about say, everything. What, what, yeah. About everything. Um, and he just said so much great stuff. And I think the only thing, the only way of directing it was being quite focused with the questions. Okay. But actually, what we ended up using was a very um, a sort of off-the-cuff remark that he made, and it was perfect. It was exactly what I needed. Mm. It was just. Unscripted, you couldn't plan that. That you couldn't write. Mm. You just couldn't write. And it fits perfectly. And it then it sets off the wheels in motion for the final act of the film. No, no, because it, 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 watching it, obviously, I'm used to seeing him do that, you know, that sort of yeah. talking to camera about something with, within counterculture and entertainment and horror. And it all sounded very natural. And I'm thinking, this is, <laughs> this is yeah. amazing. Yeah. But actually, to know that it was a real interview, that you've, yeah. you've, you've took the, the bits that you needed to fit your film, is, and, so, and, that's a, and that's also, in a way, you, you, you were taking a bit of a gamble there, because as, as clever as he is, it might, it might have been an exercise that just walked off, you know, walked off with itself and didn't fit in the end, because you weren't under, under pressure to use it, was you, I suppose? No, it, no, under, under no pressure at all. I think, I mean, the first draft of the script yeah. that I wrote, I think... I think it might have been 10 pages. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
not ready yet, not ready. I just know it. I thought it's not ready, but from the first draft, <laughs> from the first draft, I had a little line in my little final draft PDF that said, "Interview with Kim Newman," and I didn't know how to, how the hell that was going to transition. <laughs> I had no idea. I just thought, oh, God, I need to put him in there. And then for a while I thought, what about if I talk to lots of critics? And I was like, no, I'm not making a full documentary here. Mm. I'm making a drama. So I don't want to go and interview many of people. I want to interview that particular expert. Mm. Um, but then as the drafts evolved and the characters evolved, and, I mean, when I'm writing from draft to draft, things do percolate and things change. But I will talk to myself as the characters. So I will do the call and response of both lines. So I work lots and lots and lots on the dialogue. Um, so through the drafts, as I spent more time speaking as those characters and writing those scenes, I then worked out, how I could transition, even if he didn't say something that fit perfectly, I worked out that there would be enough of a discussion yeah. around ventriloquist acts and child's play and the incantation and voodoo and how that gets used that I would find some way mm. getting out of it, which then led on to the rest of the magical happenings in the film. How <laughs> very nice support. How do you, how how do you balance the the shift then between you, the writer, who's got all the creative freedom you want, and you can, as the, as the I think the William Goldman quote goes, you know, you can write fifty elephants come over the hill, and obviously <laughs> some producers got to find fifty elements. But obviously you're doing the directing and you're doing and you're part of the production. So you, you, there's your imagination, but then there's the sort of reality of what you're going to be able to produce because obviously yes. resources and finances are only finite, yeah. unfortunately for us all. So They always are, you know. I've, I've been around <laughs> for a long time now and done some really expensive projects, and there is never enough money. You never yeah. have enough resource. You never do, honestly. You no, I, 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 was, I was fortunate. <laughs> I worked on... I was an extra on Tarzan, the, the, oh, wow. that film that was out recently. Yeah. And I was, you know, there's a 200, what, $200 million movie? Yeah, yeah. Easy, easy. Yeah. And I watched a load of gaffers and stuff strap car batteries to a quad bike to dampen <laughs> the, the, to dampen the, um, the suspension because they didn't have kick quick enough to move the camera, but the motorbike would do. And you're like, so this is in a world where they could have anything they want. They're having to improvise with car batteries and a quad bike. So, no, I totally... So let's... On, on Connie, then, for you, what was... what? What was the sort of from page to screen as you the director? What was mm -hmm. what what on the page was the biggest challenge for you to produce, as it were, from, from your Ooh. cast and the, the production? Um, I think there's a number of ways of looking at it. Really, mm. from the outset, I wanted to make a film about a stand-up with some setting in a comedy club and. Yeah. When you're writing it, my producer head sort of goes, wow, that's expensive. That's going to be a venue hire. How do I do that on, you know, a box of vitamin C tablets? That, that's my budget. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's the kind of thing of do I write that in or do I skirt round it? Do you not write in things you want to, to write into it because you don't think financially you're going to be able to pull it off? Mm. So instead... I just wrote in pretty much what I wanted and then found the challenges in pre-production, but I allowed for a much longer pre-production period. Okay. Because we're a smaller team than I would usually work with. Right. 
um, but also we kind of knew we'd have about two grand okay. to, to shoot it on, which for a smaller short that is much shorter or less complex, that's fine. Like my last short, I think, was shot on 300 quid. Mm. And that was that was great. That was fine, but it was a six-minute short, and it was more almost more sketchy, almost I suppose like a decent vignette, really. Okay. Whereas Connie, as you said, there's so much going on, mm. and it's really intense, and there's a lot in there mm. um, that you know the budget is going to be spent. So, in pre-production, which was about three months um, from pretty much when I went, that here's the final draft. I had casting in mind already, yeah. which which sort of came into the process during the drafts. I did a little casting board of mm, who might be able to play two people at once and operate a puppet. So that's a very short list, actually. <laughs> it's You're basically restricted, but also you have people that you dream to work with. And so, for me, that was Catherine. So I thought, well, from an actor's perspective when I'm in pre-production, how can I make it so it's not impossible for an actor to actually pull this off? And I don't have a big budget, so it's probably going to be two days in my script breakdown of what's in every scene, what do I need? Yeah. Oh, God, okay, I'm going to do this in two days. This is going to be pretty intense. And the next one being locations. Where am I going to find these locations? And I remembered... Um, Years ago, somebody that I was involved with worked at this really great venue in Stockwell, and it's a comedy club, it's a bar, um, it looks great, it's an easier thing for me to do the set dressing on, mm. there's parking, it's close to Stockwell Station, so practically I'm thinking, financially, I can probably pull that off and do a deal with them. Yeah. And there are so many scenes. I mean, it's 34 scenes, so you know when you're doing Whoosh. that. It's 34 scenes, yeah, mm. with pretty much everything done in two days, apart from the interview with Kim, which was a separate trip and one of the first things that we did. Um, I thought, this is a lot of scenes. I need this to be a two-camera shoot. For most of the shoots, I need to have two cameras going. Okay. Which adds the extra layer of complexity to it because you've then got two camera people to manage, which is, you know, as great and talented as they are, it's an extra person who has a little bit of visual control over the look of your film because you can't look at absolutely every shot at every second. And I'm guessing each setup cameras. takes longer than single camera setups. Actually, I, I found it the opposite. I okay, found it, Yeah, I found depending on where the lighting was positioned, yeah. it really saved us time. It really saved us time, and it gave us some great options in the edit. Okay. Um, and, for example, when you've got an actress being two people at once and operating a puppet, you know, there's, there's the, an element of, is the actor going to be tired? What if their best take we've only got from one angle? Mm. And then it's really hard to recreate that kind of spontaneity. So I found it really gave a lot more options in the edit. Um, it made for a much more complex edit, though, for, for James. I was going to say, yeah, because you've got it's, it's dream for continuity, but then I guess it's it's um, it's yeah. what's, what, what, which one is the best then? <laughs> yeah, I think from my point of view, in terms of budget, you know, mm. we had a really great DOP <coughs> and our another camera operator who's also a DOP. Yeah, and um, the the film is is. is easily, I would say, evenly balanced between both cameras. Yeah. Uh, 
because they're both really, really skilled. And they're both quick, which is helpful. Um, and in terms of the lighting, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a reductive process anyway. So particularly the second day, I trawled, I'd trawled Airbnb for about two months to find a flat that looked there I wanted to, but practically you could shoot in, had enough space, had some parking, was accessible, mm. you know, didn't have a million neighbours who might kick off at you, which is another big problem that you can have on a location, um, but didn't cost the earth or that someone didn't just want to charge through the nose a massive location fee for. So in terms of that, on the second day, we shot in this flat, this beautiful flat I found on Airbnb, Mm. And um, because of the setup of the flat, we just, you know, put bin bags all over the window, turned night into day. So actually, the lighting and the setup wasn't that bad, I don't think, for a two camera shoot. I, I would like to do that in future, just work with two cameras or more, because I think it saves you days. Well, I mean, look, I mean, a 20 minute film shot in two days is, is yeah. no mean feat at the best of times. So I think, yeah. I think if you found. That, that level of efficiency, then, you know, you're going to want to see how far you can stretch yourself, I suppose, <laughs> yes. with, with, that, with that theory, because it obviously works. I mean, I wouldn't, I, having watched it, I wouldn't have known that there was, there was that element to it. It all looked, it all looked like all, you know, true, true, true and straight as a die, you know. Oh, good. I'm glad. I think it, it was a challenging one for two days. And also what, what put extra time constraints on it was, um, Catherine was cast in 1984 on the West End, mm. which I think she, she's still doing at the moment. And so, of course, you can't do 14, 16 hour day work through the night kind of thing if you run over, because you have to respect that that person's in a play or in rehearsals or will finish with you potentially at midnight and be up at 6am. Mm. So we did sort of 10 hour days, 10, 11 hour days, including her travel, mm. whereas if you don't have that constraint, you could potentially get another four hours in each day, you know. So the constraints are there, but, I mean, everything I've worked on has always had constraints. It's just about how creatively you problem-solve around it. Mm. But def definitely in this case, the edit was the most arduous process because we had two cameras going for two days, um... We had all di all different kinds of sound files, you know. So many our sound recorders did such a great, efficient job, so that we had the best sound we could possibly get. But of course, it the, the, just means more and more and more files in post. There's also visual effects that are in there. Um, there's we did some green screen stuff in there that was in post production as well. It was it was a tough job. So it's though we shot in two days, it took two months to complete in post. Wow. Uh, yeah. So if, if you sort of imagine that some films can be shot in four weeks and they may be in the edit for eight weeks or 12 weeks, our ratio is completely off for something yeah, that's yeah, been shot yeah. in two days. I mean, saying that, James is also a writer, so he, he writes and he went off to direct something for a week and wrote other things. Mm. But for the most part, you know, sometimes he'd be up all night editing it or he'd get up before writing something and do three or four hours on it and then final cut 10 finally saved lots of time just because of the way the application works but if he'd been doing that in final cut seven it could have been a four month edit right okay okay so just the, the benefits of the more update software was, yeah. a real, was a real advantage in the process oh yeah definitely I, th I think it saved an awful lot of time it's just so much easier to work with 
And I mean, years ago, I used to use Avid, which just, I couldn't have, I, it couldn't have been cut on Avid. Um, and Adobe Premiere, and it couldn't have been done on Adobe Premiere any more efficiently, I don't think at all. Well, before I spoke to you, I was listening to, um, on a podcast of my had, he didn't ring me up. I was listening to Billy Crystal talking about making films when he was, when he was a youngin, as it were. Ah, okay. And he talks about, it's sort of, you, you forget film was film. So to yeah. speak, you know, because obviously the, yeah. the, the world we live in, certainly for affordable films on the two-day shoot sort of budgets and stuff, is is digital. And he talks about, he was just talking about cutting film, sticking it back together, cutting yeah. film. And it's just like, wow. Do you know what? I, I miss film, actually. And it's a really difficult one because, I mean, Connie was shot on a 4K Blackmagic a, a HD Blackmagic pocket mm. and actually between 4K and HD when overall the film's going to be HD I think it's really a negligible difference anyway but you know I still like the look and the feel of a film that's shot on film Yeah, I really do I mean I, I, I love Tangerine and that's shot on iPhones and I think that looks amazing mm. but I still miss you know God, it sounds really old-fashioned. I miss the likes of Lawrence of Arabia. Do you know what I mean? But, no, the, it is the medium, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we, we call it film because it was on yeah. film, not because yeah. that's, that's what the, the, the thing's called. I mean, I was lucky enough, it's not gone out here as a podcast. I interviewed uh, Larry Smith, who, oh, wow. was, who okay. was obviously, um, well, obviously at all for people listening, but he was um, Kubrick's DOP on yeah, yeah, Eyes Wide yeah. Shut. And more recently for me, uh, what, what thrilled me to be able to speak to him, he was DOP on Only God Forgives, the Wind and Refer movie. Mm, mm. And that's an interesting movie. <laughs> oh, amazing movie! I've, I've seen it too many times now. Um, but it was like it was a really. I found out he was British, and thought, well, I'll see if I can get him on Britflix podcast. And as, oh yeah, and one email to his agent, and and then two weeks later, he's, I was talking to him. It was quite quite you know quite humbling experience really to get that kind of uh, breath. But he he, I asked him about that. You know, as someone that's worked through sort of playing with NASA lenses for Barry Lyndon. You know, in 1975 with Stanley Kubrick, and he's now shooting on digital with people like Wynden Raffin. You know, yeah. What, he he thought he thought that Kubrick would be interested in digital, but would would concede that film is still better. He would he would he would test digital to its limit yeah. and go, but what I want. Because apparently Kubrick's mantra was, "I don't want real; I want interesting." Interesting, yeah. <laughs> and I think what you what the quality you, you sort of probably. The quality of th- that, w- that we that we w- that we know we feel and experience the film is is something interesting. It's not you can't quantify it. You, you couldn't you couldn't write a list of what it is all the time. But film just has that. I think also it's the I think it's the blacks and things you know when, when yeah, the things that yeah. aren't in shot. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you saw um, Alleluia a couple of years ago at Fright Fest. The, no, uh, no, no, I missed that one. Fabrice de Wolves. That was shot in sixteen mil. Oh, you see, oh, I I think. You can really see the. Di- I notice the difference. Have you seen the S- Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle film? I've not. No, no. Oh, right. It's a, it's an Aaron Sorkin script anyway, so you know it's going to be a winner. You're mm. not going to have a bad time when you watch the film. Yeah. But it's set in uh, two different time periods in the '80s, so two different years, mm. and then sort of up to the launch of of more modern Apple products. Right. And it's shot. The first two acts of the film are shot on film. Right. So you see, he's, he decided to use film that would be used at that time period. Nice so you touch, can nice see, touch. you can really see the difference. Mm. You can see the quality difference, and you can see the colour difference. And yeah, of course, in the grade, 
you know, people will do things to tinker with that and enhance or add some degradation, that kind of thing. Mm. But you really can see the difference, and I love that. I love that you can see how it's evolved to something that's sharper but flatter almost. I do find digital can look quite flat sometimes. Mm. Um, but I tend to just go, is it a good story or not, and try and... You know, I, I think it's... The advent of digital is brilliant because it's lowered the barriers to entry because anyone Indeed. can literally go out and make a film on an iPhone and probably not edit it perfectly, but do some kind of editing on their iPhone. Yeah. You know, you, you won't get it a perfect edit that you'd want to put in a cinema, but, you know, it, it'll, it'll do. It'll do particularly for short films that you can then submit to places or put in Vimeo, for example. Well, I mean, so, I, think, I think just the simple process of learning to tell stories visually. I mean, it's... Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's an immediate thing, isn't it? You yeah. shoot, you yeah. edit, you can see. Yeah, and it's so much more mobile, and cameras are more mobile now than they used to be. I mean, when I first started making shorts, God, 13 years ago, we had a massive, heavy um, three-point lighting kit. Mm. And it was just awful. You know, you just cab it around everywhere. Now it's cameras that I can fit in my bag or that I attach you know, to the tripod, and it's great, and they look really good, and they're really effective. So I think the barriers to entry have really come down, and I think that's opened up opportunities, because, yeah, you know, I went to film school for a bit, great, but lots of people don't get that opportunity. But I don't think you need it. I really don't. I think there is so much that you can learn from being practical and going out and shooting stuff and coming up with stories, getting on shooting people, getting some experience and learning from things like nofilmschool.com. There are some really great websites that, that can really help lead the way. So. No, it's totally great. I think, I think that the, uh, as, as I'm getting, I mean, I'm of, I'm, of, I'm of a good vintage, you know, past 40 and all that. <laughs> um, so people that, that I speak to of my vintage who will have learned with, with film Going to film school was access to kit. It wasn't just to learn how to yeah. make film. Yeah. It was access to kit that everyone could yeah. afford. Yeah. Whereas if I speak to someone who's 25 now, mm. the access to the kit doesn't matter because yeah. for 600 quid, you could be geared up to make a film and edit it. Yes, yeah. Which and is I insane think... yeah, in I, comparison. It's a, it's, it's a funny one, really, the, the film school thing. I don't know, I, th I think if you're going to pay that much money to go to a film school or getting that much debt, I don't know, you might as well be using that money to go out and fund some of your projects, really. I mean, I guess the, I guess the theory is, if you go to a premier film school, let's say mm -hmm. you get into UCLA, yeah. or you get into New York film school, then the people you graduate with are going to be a network of people. So you're, yes, you're, it's, yeah. like, it's like doing a business degree at Harvard in the end. You're basically just paying for a network. Yeah, you, you, you do. I think, I think there's an element of that. I mean, particularly when I was doing the feature film production at the Met Film School, I was the oldest one there, mm. Cal Surprise. Mm. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of people there who were 19 or 20, and it was they might have made a short as part of a GCSE or something, but it, it was really, really great for that. I think it depends on where you're at and where you want to go. Mm. Um, and if you want to be a director or if you want to be a DOP, I think if you want to do the technical craft stuff, I think you do need the training for that anyway. But mm. there, there are different, different routes to market. Something that is really great about film schools is consistently I see in selections at short film festivals, there's normally some that come from film schools, you know, like NFTS or Metfilm or... Yeah. There's generally some pick of the crop there, but then at the same time, 
I've also seen a uh, bit of a controversial st statement, but I've, the best example I can give of what I'm trying to say is I went to um, a short film day at BAFTA and watched tons and tons of short films and heard from lots of great speakers and the BAFTA shortlisted shorts and all sorts. And there was a real sense of sometimes there is a particular aesthetic that comes from a film school. Right, and so okay. sometimes a certain cohort of people will come through and they have a very, very similar style. Um, and it's generally because that's kind of the way they're taught. And I don't think that's a bad thing because great things can come from that. Mm. But I think it's important to find your own voice and work out what you're trying to say and how you want things to look rather than being taught just to do things in a certain way and adopting it. Well, that, that gives me a good segue there. So just to, let's get back to... Um to Connie and just reflect on having a world premiere at, at, at one of the world's great, greatest and biggest film festivals. How was that experience for you to get to see a film with, like you say before, like a very film literate, very horror literate audience, mm. but just, just, just there, you know, having that experience, how was it? I think for me, I mean, Fright Fest is like Christmas anyway. I love it. I, mm. I love Fright Fest. Um, and I take, you know, the time to do nothing else for those five days but enjoy Fright Fest. And, yeah. you know, months in advance, ages in advance, I'm looking at the brochure or the listings going, which of these million films do I want to see? And then I sit with my partner and I do a sort of clash finder. Mm. Of, I want to go to that one, but that means I can't go to that. So I love Fright Fest anyway. But I think the, the real joy of it is sitting amongst an audience who are going to watch your film, nerve-wracking as that is, by the way. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because when you're sat writing something or you're having an idea percolate for months on end and then you're in production with people who are doing the short because they really want to do it so they love it anyway, the first real sign of whether or not it truly works to someone not in your inner sanctum is when it gets its first screening. Right. You know, so you have no idea, really. You might be really happy with the edit. You might think you've done something amazing. Your actress and their agent might love it. You might be getting into festivals. But that moment when you sit down, oh, my God, your bottom goes like the clappers. Because it's an absolutely terrifying experience of what if they don't laugh at the jokes? Or... What if they don't get it? Or what if they do a sort of slow hand clap? That mm. You know, there's nothing... Or someone... You hear someone clapping because they feel totally obliged to. So for Fright First, because it did so well, the fact that there were cheers and people applauding and not in that sort of, oh, God, I better applaud this. Mm. It was brilliant. And there's one awful, dirty joke that's in there when someone sat opposite me literally went what the F, <laughs> what have I just heard? And I thought, great, this is the best audience for this. Um, and I think it worked really well at Fright Fest because, you know, it's a genre film. It's, it's a comedy horror, but it's, you know, it's, it's a genre film. Of course. But um, I'll be interested to see how it plays at non-genre festivals. I think that will be an interesting one. Um, so what, what, what's next for Connie, then? Uh, the Connie's... At the moment, we're waiting on 50, 50 or 60 notifications over the next sort of six, eight months. The murky world of applying for film festivals. The murky world of film festivals. <laughs> uh, the, opaque, <laughs> the opaquest of logic. <laughs> it's a weird one, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, and... Oh God. 
So when we finished post, fortunately, we managed to hit a whole raft of deadlines, early deadlines, mid-deadlines, mm. last deadlines. So fortunately, um, we're on the right track for applying and being considered. Whereas last year when I shot Quinoa, which was edited while we were <laughs> just over one evening when we were at Frightfest, it was finished at Frightfest last year. Yeah. Because by the time it was finally completed, we, we missed a whole tranche of deadlines. So it's now only just sort of catching up with itself. Um, but I mean, in terms of film festivals, you know, I love Fright Fest. I'd love to, to have something in South by Southwest. I'd love to have something in Fantastic Fest. But I'd love something in Tribeca, you know. So mm. we'll see how it goes. I, I love film festivals. Um, but there is that strange tension of, am I going to get an acceptance in my email inbox today? Or is someone going to send me a standard rejection notification or am I not even going to be told and then it will be published online so there is always that <clears throat> that sort of strange tension but um, Connie will be playing at Sick Chick Flicks Film Festival okay. in November with um, the fantastic director who did the stylist and Grammy Jill Six okay. so playing alongside her and where's, girl, where is that? Where is that? that's where? North Carolina ok ok cool uh, Katie Bonham's got a film in there. It's a, it's a really nice list, actually, so that's great. And um, had news today that my last film, Quinoa, that's just been accepted into another one, which I wasn't even expecting. So the, the screening list will go up over the next sort of six to eight months. I think it's difficult with shorts to find an audience because you're kind of subject to festival programmers' preference or how many slots they have. Mm. You know, like Grimfest has five slots. They could get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submissions. I mean, that's the likelihood of getting in is, is so slim for any filmmaker. Mm. But then, you know, I spoke with someone from Rhode Island, and they had um, 6,000 submissions this year. 6,000 submissions. It's nuts, isn't it? It's that, that, that's, nuts. The, that's the downside of everyone, yeah. everyone being able to make a film. <laughs> it is. It's, 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 well, it's great for film festivals because it is, yeah, if, sure. if you pay to be considered, you mm. know, yes, you're paying for viewing time, but there are some smaller festivals that rely on that, you know, if mm. they don't have sponsors. But um, it, there's, there's also that thing of you don't want too many films that look alike or say the same thing. You know, it's that, that sort of murky world. And then also... There are some programmers that love what I do, but then there will be some that just go, oh, God, not this fluffy thing. Why can't she just garrot someone on screen and we'll have a, a bloodbath? But that's kind of not what I do at the moment. So, you know, there will inevitably be some horror festivals that go, that's not really horror enough for me. Yeah, no, so, no. I, I mean, I just think it's a valuable lesson for some people listening that, that, that you've applied for 50. And, yeah, yeah. And the fact that you've shown at Frightfest has very little bearing in many senses to, to the success or failure that will come from those applications in a way. I mean, for some people it'll resonate because they'll be yes. aware of it. But like you say, there'll be other people going, this isn't violent enough, this isn't that enough, this is not, obviously this more straight, like a Tribeca where you've got a drama as the mainstay. They're going to oh, go, yeah, yeah. Their, their choice might be, oh, we've already got genre stuff. And then, then, then it's nothing to do with the filming of itself it's just no, no, what, no. They're, it's, what it's... they're balancing their program with so yeah because you know particularly if you're a mixed festival you know they don't just want to program everything that's horror or comedy they want a real mix and a real balance and animation and documentary 
and micro shorts and now music videos, web series. People are really interested in having web series, part of the programming or VR stuff. So actually, the slots, I think, though, there are more film festivals than I've ever been, I've, I've ever seen, sorry. Mm. Um, there are more film festivals than I've ever known. You know, the scope and what they might program is also so much broader, and there are so many more people making shorts. I, I don't think it's a negative. I think it's a really interesting balance, and it's a really interesting time. Um, I, I must admit, I was being... I was being facetious from a very selfish point of view. I think, <laughs> I think I think from a creative point of view and from a viewing experience, it means that the the the, the breadth of what you'll be able to see won't be limited by, say, yeah. some film school doctrine that, that churns out <laughs> a, a group of people who all make films that look the same. Whereas Although the, I have seen those showcases. Oh no, to me too, me too. But it's <laughs> but it is but it is great when when you see stuff that comes in from left field because. Yeah. Because the doors are open, because you only have to go to without a box or freeway or whatever yeah. to submit your film. And if if, the, if you resonate with a programmer, you'll get shown. And that's kind of, it's not a trick, is it, in a way? No, no, it's not a trick. And I think, to, to you know, in terms of Fright Fest, some good things are already coming out of it because, you know, people have discovered the film and, you know, mm. I'm chatting to you now. And I chatted with um, a guy from Sci-Fi Now today. There are a couple of other people to talk to, so that's really—it's really great for that. People are aware of it, and it kind of builds a presence. Of course, no. Um, but also, you know, other festival programmers have been in touch to say, "Can I have a look at it? Um, this is something we'd really like to see. We've heard this is really good, and that's positive because it's not queue jumping, but it means for start off, at times you're saving an entry fee. Which you know what—if you can—if you've made a short film, you need to keep a few quid in your back pocket. Well, you, I mean. really, you really do, you know. So it's really helpful for that, and it's. I think it's always nice as well to be courted a little bit, you know. If someone approaches you and says, "We're interested in taking a look at it. We might be able to program it. Can you send it over?" Even though it's not an acceptance, it's just nice. It feels like um, someone sending you a kiss on an email. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> because you know you. I think it's better. I, think, I must admit, if I if I got it, I think I'd find it better than a kiss on an email. It's the it's. You know, it's the physical equivalent of a real brilliant quickie first day in the morning. If you go to your email inbox and you've got two festival rejections and then you've got a nice email from someone about your film going, can I watch it? I'm getting a sense of your stand-up here with, this, with, this, with these <laughs> metaphors you're using to describe good news. I like it. It all comes back <laughs> to film, Stuart. It all comes back to film with me. Well, look... Um, <laughs> We'd like to wish you the best of luck with it, and I think it, I think it's, it deserves to get seen in more places. So fingers crossed, oh. you get you get more uh, you get more so stuff much. scheduled. And uh, obviously, as things develop, you know, keep us posted. Any 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 prizes or anything you get, then obviously we can we can announce that on the news and recycle uh -huh. the, the podcast and stuff as and when. Um, and but yeah, but thank you very much for giving us your time to talk about your film and your experiences. That's brilliant. Thank you. And if I can plug. ConnieMovie.com, that's where behind the scenes and extras are and screening details and the production gallery and things like that and lots of thank yous to people who helped make the film happen and also a link to Moranic Productions which is my production company with James Moran and we're developing lots of lovely shorts and features and web series. Well we'll put all that in the show notes for you if you can send me that in an email. Brilliant, thank you very much I shall. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes. Hey, what's going on?
If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we release it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to stream from on the website. This has been a Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast 2016. If you are listening to this podcast through iTunes and you've got five minutes to spare and you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave me a review and a comment. It will really help to publicise and promote the Britflix.com podcast and get more people to hear what you enjoy. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.